This episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by Cherry Hill Bibles. This is the second week, the Cherry Hill Bible giveaway. Uh, Cherry Hill made me two beautiful, custom, Gospel Riot-themed Bibles, and they are they are wild. They got all the crazy colors, and again, they smell like mint. So I'm going to head over to Apple Podcasts right now, and I'm going to choose a winner from all the people that have reviewed Gospel Riot on Apple Podcasts. Here we go. So this week's winner is Cool Cat with a Gat. He says, he or she says, now this is a podcast that speaks. Gospel Riot, what is up? Awesome podcast, Les. Keep up the good work. Semper Reformanda. Thank you so much, Cool Cat with a Gat. You won. You won this other this other awesome Bible. Uh, send me an email, less at gospelriot.com, and I'll get this this uh, Bible sent out to you. Uh, thank you guys so much for your reviews. Uh, we'll be get, doing some other giveaways uh, in, the, in the future, I'm sure. I want to thank Cherry Hill Bibles for providing these Bibles, and uh, I ask that you guys would go over to... Uh, their Facebook page and their Instagram page. Uh, They'll make you a new one. They'll revitalize your old one so you can have a Bible that looks great and feels great. Once again, Cherry Hill Bibles on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much, Cherry Hill Bibles. Hi, Wes. My name is Brian, and I had an interesting thought. Uh, If you and Russell Moore started a theology debate podcast. You could call it More or Less. And I think that that is a fantastic idea and you should do it immediately. And I'll only take 10% for the big guy. Thank you. Bye. What a great idea. Uh, I like the generosity of only taking uh, 10% for the big guy. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, have, I don't know much about Russell Moore. I have met Michael Moore. Um, I won a uh, short film contest a long, long time ago, and uh, I got to meet Michael Moore at the Traverse City Film Festival. Uh, it was pretty neat. My favorite part of that experience was, uh, you know, before Michael Moore made super liberal documentaries, he actually made a, sh- uh, a low-budget movie called Canadian Bacon with John Candy, and I got to talk to, to Michael Moore about, uh, about John Candy because he knew him pretty well. So that was, that was kind of cool. And also, I think I'm going to save the pun on my name for my autobiography uh, when I finally write my memoirs. It will be titled, The Road Less Traveled. If you'd like to leave a voicemail, give me a call, 772-324-9328. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to interact with your questions and your comments and your thoughts. 772 324 Nine three two eight, and uh, while you're at it, if you could please hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five star review, five star rating, five star review. You know, write something nice. Let me know uh, if you like the show. I'd really appreciate it. And now we're going to discuss the very important relationship between works and faith today on Gospel Riot. Welcome to Gospel Riot. I'm Les Lanfear. Joining me on the show today is a minister of the gospel in the OPC. 
he does uh, street preaching in Philadelphia, and he's doing this translation of Van Maastricht. I think I'm pronouncing that right. His name is Michael Spangler. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Les. So tell me a little bit more about this translation work you're doing. You sent me the second edition of uh, Van Maastricht, and it's it's already been super encouraging to me. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, so Van Maastricht wrote a theo- theology called in English the Theoretical Practical Theology. And it's called that because in every chapter, he moves from theory to practice, starting with a text of scripture, then continuing to doctrine, and then to a lengthics in which he's answering objections to the faith that he's uh, taught, and then always concluding with practice, which, as he says, of preaching is the soul of the sermon and the great end of Christian doctrine. And so it's a very wholesome book, always leading to the Christian heart and life, but at the same time, a very sound and careful theology. So it's been a real personal blessing. Uh, We are not even halfway through. I'm the assistant editor and translator. We've got volume three of seven, Lord willing, coming out this April from Reformation Heritage Books. And then in the years to come, we'll finish up. Uh, So what language are you translating from? From Latin. That is crazy. Well, it was in God's kindness. There was a universal language then that theologians could communicate. So even though Maastricht was a Dutchman, he could communicate with everyone in Europe who had been educated. So so you just know Latin. Well, I wasn't born knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I learned it in college. And then I taught, I taught Latin after college as well. Is it a hard language to learn? Do you know it has its challenges? I think there are probably other languages that are more difficult to learn. I think Latin's difficulty is exaggerated because in many places it's poorly taught. Okay. And because it's not a modern language, so there are ways in which it's it's different than things we're used to. Um, there are things that are easy about Latin. It's very regular. And, you know, like any language, it, it takes some diligence and long-term hard work to, to master. So the discussion that I want to have today is obviously... Uh, is super important. It's super central to the gospel. And uh, it's also just something that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about in, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. Um, but the reason I thought of you for this, for this uh, issue is the first time I ever met you, you were preaching a sermon at uh, a church near me. It's the, the, our sending church for the church that I actually attend. And you taught out of First John, and uh, it was it was just a, a incredible, powerful sermon, uh, and it was uh, really just dealing with the relationship of Christians to sin. And I talked to you after the sermon, and you said something that was pretty crazy. And I'm I'm hoping that I'm not gonna like scandalize you by saying this or scandalize the audience or whatever. And if you can give a little explanation, but you you said that the, basically the message of First John is that Christians don't sin. I don't know if I don't know if you'd still agree with with that summary. And you know you, you laid it out, and I thought it was a, a great explanation. But um, how would you react? How do you react to me saying that right now? Well, it sounds like anyone who. Uh who wants to understand that phrase should have been there <laughs> yes. in that conversation. 
because I wouldn't yes. just say that to anyone in that way. Sure, exactly. But it, but it should be obvious to all readers of First John that that's just a quote from the book. He says as much mm -hmm. three or four times. So there's a context, of course, in which that has um, a, a meaning. And the meaning is not that a Christian is sinless. That would be a lie. Mm -hmm. John denies it in the first chapter. Very plainly, yeah. if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John's not denying Romans 7, which I'm convinced is Paul speaking of himself as a regenerate man. He says, yeah. a wretched man that I am speaks of the law of sin within him. And that's the reality. And I think as a Christian grows more holy, he's more aware of that, laments it more. In that sense, Ezekiel 36 hates himself, loathes himself for his iniquities and abominations. So I by no means mean to deny any of that. But I think what John emphasizes rightly in his book is that true salvation always includes a conversion, including repentance from sin, and sanctification, the being made holy. First, the dominion of sin being broken, and then its power uh, by God's grace slowly being removed as we grow more and more in likeness to Christ. I think that is a a wonderful blessing of the gospel, one of the great gifts of grace that God gives his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, it's controversial, I think, sometimes to to discuss, to really just say it either way. Like there's a, a licentious way to talk about the Christian's relationship to their sin. And then, you know, so there's, there's people like Paul Washer, for example, his, his whole ministry, and he's, he's one of the people that really awakened me to really take Christianity more seriously and he's uh, he's sort of a gateway to reform theology for a lot of people in a lot of ways um, but he really does emphasize um, the holiness that the Christian life requires and um, it's it, it, but but then he also gets criticized because like he'll say things like uh, you know, if if as a Christian, if you're looking at pornography, then you haven't you haven't reached the first rung of Christianity. Mm. Like you're, and and you know, people take issue with that. But you know, so so what do you what do you think about the balance of of talking about uh, Christians not living habitually in sin, uh, but being just being honest about the fact that we we do still sin. Well, as far as balance goes, I think our age is unbalanced against holiness. And I find Paul Washer and others like him who preach holiness very helpful and refreshing in this age. I've never sensed that Washer has any sort of legalism, as if he misunderstood what holiness is or exaggerated or diminished, rather, the sinfulness that remains in a Christian but I, I do think Christians ought to be and must be holy. That's really the weight of John's statement that Christians don't sin. They don't live for sin. Their trajectory of their life is not sinful. When they sin, they repent. They hate their sins. You know, and as Paul says, mm -hmm. even in Romans 7, they delight to do the law of God even in their inward being. And that is true for every true Christian. Those things grow, of course, as we grow in Christ. But if they're not there, it's right to say you're not a Christian. And I think one of the great 
reasons people object to such preaching of holiness is they also object to the duty of self-examination, which, as you know, is we're called too many times in the book of First John. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard and difficult duty, but we ought not presume to be Christians if we can't see in our lives the fruit of God's saving work, and that includes the fruit of holiness, without which, as the author of Hebrews says, no man will see the Lord. There's, it seems like the scriptures uh, almost have a tension sometimes. Uh, so Paul seems to very clearly lay out that uh, we're justified by faith alone. And then uh, in the book of James, James will talk about how um, faith without works is dead. And you're not, he even says that you're not justified by faith alone. Um, and that's become, I mean, breaks up entire views of what Christianity actually is and what it means to be saved. Um, So on a fundamental level, how do we think about works as far as uh, uh, when, when we are coming into salvation um, how, and how important is it that we get, get that part of it right? Yeah. I think it's important to say that there's no conflict between Paul and James, of course, we wouldn't expect that, both inspired by the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, the God who cannot lie, cannot contradict himself. But also remember that Paul has the same message as James in many places. You know, chapter 6 of Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And you can multiply many examples from that same book. And James by no means is denying the primacy and centrality of faith in the Christian life, I think both would gladly affirm and do, just as I do, that good works are the fruits and evidences of faith, that they flow from faith, and without faith, all our works are dead, no matter how good they look. God forbid that I would preach a different gospel than the biblical gospel, which is very clearly a gospel not of works, but of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think there's a good way to reconcile those things. I don't think there actually is any tension or conflict, but there is tension in our our limited understanding, but also in our flesh, which has a vested interest in driving those two things apart. So what would you say to a Roman Catholic, for example, who would point to James and say that James is teaching that we're not justified by faith alone. Well, I could quote to him Romans or Galatians. You know, we're not justified by works of the law. Mm -hmm. For by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And just reason with him about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, our deadness in sin, and how even one sin, because the wages of sin is death, earns for the sinner an eternal, infinite weight of the wrath of God. And mm-hmm. no good work, even the best, even good works done by Christians could ever, I mean, to, to put even one good work on the scale as part of our justification, part of our right to the kingdom of heaven is destroying the entire gospel and exalting man at the expense of God. It's foolishness. I mean, when people try to bring up a particular passage 
against some well-known Christian doctrine, I often find it's not useful to get into the weeds with that passage, but to just mm-hmm. go to clearer passages. Because, of course, the rule, of, the infallible rule of interpreting is Scripture itself. So we have, you know, dozens of places which very clearly state that man is not justified by any works of the law. And that's the right context in which to read James. Yeah, let me let me actually read this passage because I, I think sure I think uh, just mentioning it maybe not isn't all that helpful. So uh, I'll start in verse fourteen. So this is uh, James two verse fourteen. He says, "What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled.'" Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Uh, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, And he goes on from there. But so he's 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 tying works to faith and saying that faith without without works is dead. Yes. I'm persuaded that the key to the justification language is in verse 18. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will Mm -hmm. show thee my faith by my works. So the justification spoken of is the proof of the living character of the faith. And I think it, it can be safely said that true saving, even justifying faith, is proven its works. Now, that's just another way to say that the same faith that justifies is the faith that sanctifies, because salvation is a whole package. That doesn't confuse justification and sanctification. They are two distinct gifts that the sinner receives in union with Christ. And it doesn't mean that uh, justification now rests on works, but it does mean the same Mm -hmm. faith that justifies is shown by its fruits. And this is very important. I think of Romans 8, 1. I'm persuaded that the text reads in verse 1, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So even there, Paul doesn't want anyone to have confidence of justification without also being persuaded of his sanctification. You can't see justification It's a matter of your standing before the court of God, of imputation, which, because it's, you don't, it's not itself a change of life, you don't see it. But what is seen, what is observable, that is where we should go for our assurance. And I think the whole Bible is really saying the same message. And that is underlined very firmly in the doctrine of the final judgment which without fail in the scripture is spoken of as a judgment according to works, a judgment of the righteous and the wicked, the sheep and the goats. 
men will be judged according to their deeds. The Bible says over and over and over. Denying salvation by faith? No, not at all. It's saying that the living character of the faith that alone justifies will be shown, will be in that sense justified on the last day. And many who say to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, who profess some sort of faith in him, that faith will be shown to be dead because it didn't have the works that true and living faith always produces. So so this is really similar to what uh, Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Yes. Oh, not not just similar. He's he's. It's just another way. Jesus is teaching the consistent message of Scripture um, that we will know uh, we will know one another by our fruits. Yes, and that's just such a such a brilliant, helpful picture that fruit doesn't change the nature of a tree, but fruit is what is produced by a certain kind of tree. That's right, and. When you walk up to an orange tree, you don't expect to find apples. When you walk up to a Christian, you should expect to find Christian fruit, right. which would be your works. And God certainly expects to find such. Yeah, and and and, but, and so much so that Jesus even says we can identify one another by by this fruit that that's being born. Yes, that's right. So it's it's the the visible expression of. In internal faith is that is that a good way to put it yes we're sanctified by faith um, from the inside out and the question of justification is a different one it's that of an imputed righteousness that's received by faith it's not as the Roman Catholics say even in part worked into us as if it's something infused into us and so how important do you think that is to to really drive that distinction home? Oh, it's huge. To keep to keep works out of your justification. Oh, I mean if you put one work in, you've destroyed the whole gospel. Paul calls it another gospel and he says there is none. I mean, it's a question of heaven and hell. This is not a small thing. And I I think our larger catechism in the Presbyterian churches, question 77 on the distinction between justification and sanctification is key. And if, if all of us would study it and believe it, I think a lot of our troubles <laughs> would go away. It's, it sounds like you're saying that uh, just as important as it is to keep works out of, out of your concept of, of how you, you've been justified, or, or even as the, when you share the gospel with people to not, not confuse at all the idea that you must somehow, um, you know, accomplish uh, some kind of works in order to be made right with God. Um, but then when we talk about sanctification, which is the the uh, the rest of your life as a Christian, being conformed to the image of Christ, um, we, we can't underestimate how works and, uh, you know, obedience to God uh, are absolutely central to that. And if that's, if they're not present, you have no reason to have any assurance or to even, like you said, to even call yourself a Christian. That's right. I would just leave room for biblical language that speaks okay. of the necessity of repentance, the necessity of good works and obedience. I think the classic theological distinction between the right and the possession of eternal salvation are, is very important. 
Justification speaks of the right of our of our receiving of the right of salvation, of the taking away of the guilt of our sins and the receiving of Christ's imputed righteousness that alone gives us a right to go to heaven. But the possession of heaven will not be given except a man repent and obey. The path to holiness, or path to heaven rather, is the path of holiness. It's the straight and narrow way as Christ speaks of. So there does need to be, and I make sure in my preaching that there is strong warning about the necessity of repentance and of obedience, but in their place. So never as a means to earn forgiveness of sins. I think it's important in every Christian's mind to have a clear distinction between God's dealing with our guilt and his dealing with the power of sin in us. Both have to be dealt with for us to go to heaven, but our good works have no power to deal with our guilt. And yet when it comes to the power of sin, that's all about repentance and good works. I think as you're saying this right now, I'm actually realizing that I, I don't have a really strong uh, concept of that, of that exact thing that you're talking about. Uh, I guess repentance in general when it comes to evangelizing. Well, it's so important, Les, and I think it is forgotten today, but we need to remember that repentance is the point of the gospel spear. You can read many times the Lord Jesus and the apostles after him. Their message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Isaiah mm -hmm. says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Now, many would say, if a preacher today said, cease to do evil or stop sinning, then he'd be a legalist. Mm -hmm. But no, this is actually one of the commands of the gospel, and that's a right way to speak. Paul says that those on the last day will be destroyed who have not obeyed the gospel. And we need then to recognize that repent is a gospel command. It's an evangelical command, and we must do it if we're to be saved. Um, I, I'm always maybe a little too careful, and so the way typically like the way that I visualize or I'll even like explain this to people when I'm when I'm evangelizing. I'll talk about um, repentance because I, I I I'm so I'm being so careful not to uh, introduce some kind of work that this person must do in order to be saved. So I'm trying to like distance works from repentance, and maybe maybe yeah. you know it's something I, I really need to to work on. But I, the picture in my mind is uh, a spotlight in the middle of a room. And on one half of the room is all the garbage and idolatry and sin of the world. And it's all the things that are, are enslaving you and sending you to hell. Mm. And on the other side of the room is Jesus Christ himself alone, uh, the, the one who's able to save. And so when I'm calling someone to repent, I'm essentially saying, turn the spotlight from where it is now, which is on the world and you know uh, all all the all the things you're trusting in and loving now, uh, and just turn it 180 degrees, which is repentance and faith in in one action essentially, and place your trust completely in Christ and abandon um, your love for 
desire for and enslave being enslaved to all those things yeah. uh, that you've it sounds you've quite biblical to me and that image shows how repentance can never be separate from faith they always go together i speak often of people fleeing from sin to christ and there are many godly and orthodox theologians who have even spoken of repentance in a certain sense as prior to faith mm-hmm. in salvation though they're never to be divided and i think sure yeah that's that's an important as long as we don't divide them you know we might say difference yeah. about their order but they do go together so van maastricht helped me by giving me a bit more explanation of how this works so in one of the volumes to come he speaks of the covenant of grace and he asks is the covenant conditional does the sinner have to do something to be savingly in the covenant of grace? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, he says um, there are two senses in which the co- covenant could be conditional because there are two sorts of conditions. Ones are given like means and some are given like ends. So the means would be things that God in Christ has done. Christ's death, his atoning work resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the granting of faith and repentance, all these things that we can't do for ourselves. And those obviously aren't conditions that we can fulfill. But those conditions being like means, they do point towards certain ends, which is our believing, our repenting. And those things can be spoken of as conditions. But among them, There's one that is a condition in the most strict sense in that it puts us in the covenant of grace savingly and gives us a saving interest in Christ. And that's only one, and it's only faith. Faith alone, in that sense, is the condition of the covenant. So you'll find many times elsewhere where uh, Benastric is speaking against Papus and saying that faith is the only condition of the covenant of grace, that faith is what saves. And you know, we read that in Ephesians 2. It's by grace we're saved through faith and this not of yourself. And I think he would follow up, as he does elsewhere, saying that speaking of the right of salvation, um, its possession still will be had only through good works. But he does go on in speaking of conditions to say, though faith is the only condition, most strictly speaking, there is a broader sense of the word condition in which it's proper to speak of other things being conditions of the covenant of grace, things that you are required to do within that covenant and you should not expect to have its savings blessings without it. And he gives three classes of things and you realize this man's read the Bible. He realizes that God speaks often to sinners of things they must need, they need to do to be saved that aren't just faith. The three classes are things that come before faith, things that come with faith and things that come after faith. And here is where, really, he shows a classical reform consensus that we've just forgotten today. I mean, who would speak today of, of preparation for faith? Hmm. But, but this was fairly common among Orthodox theologians. And the Lord Jesus spoke this way. He said, it's not the whole that need a physician, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous to, to salvation, to mm-hmm. repentance, but sinners by which he meant that there has to be a sense of sin Wow! before a man will even come to Christ. And I, I think that's very true. I mean, it doesn't bind 
every person to the same sense of sin, the same number of tears, etc. Right. But there does have to be a sense of your need that comes before you seek the meeting of that need in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, you know, you'd, you could say that uh, the distinction between law and gospel is even part of the uh, the call of the evangelist, that you, you want to give the law to bring about guilt. Yes. Though it wouldn't be just the law motivating mm-hmm. toward that sense of sin. Grace would as well. But yes, the law certainly has a preparatory work. And without it, I don't expect people to be converted. I preach the law all the time, mm-hmm. evangelistically, of course, although I'm glad for its other uses. I'm glad if the law just puts people further into the closet with their sins, makes them less bold in sinning, pulls the reins on our society. I think that's one thing public evangelism does, and we ought to be grateful for it. Wow. Um, and I'm happy for the law, too, to guide Christians in how they should live. We need the fullness of the use of the law. But... But yes, that first use of the law to drive men to Christ as their only hope, to show them their utter hopelessness and condemnation under the law, to, for the mountain of Sinai to shake and burn before them is very important. And that comes naturally before faith, and it is a condition in that sense. Um, things come with faith. So repentance would be one, whether you want to speak of this before or after. Mm-hmm. Faith and repentance always go together. Um, self-denial is another one. So Christ says, if any man come to me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say, if you have this sense of faith alone as if there's no other grace required, then how do you how do you even interpret such a passage? Sure. And then two, uh, Works would be part of this third category, which flow, you know, once you've repented of sins and turned from sins, you set your foot then on the path of holiness and walk on that path. You do it by the same faith without which none of our works can please God, because even the best works, the works given by grace to do are mixed with sins and bad motives and such. And if they're not cleansed by the blood of Christ, they're not acceptable. So you see how the how justification and sanctification always go together at every stage of the Christian life. But nonetheless, you know, you you must be walking the path of holiness. In what will you what account will you give at the last judgment when only the sheep who have loved and served Christ Jesus will be at his right hand? If you haven't done that loving and serving, you shouldn't expect to be at the right hand. Mm. And so that's a condition too. Now they're conditions in a lesser sense because they're not the things that give you the saving interest in Christ, and they're not what gives you the right to heaven. But they do, in their natural relation to faith, the one condition, strictly speaking, they, they are required in their own place. And thus we ought to speak of them as being required. So I have no problem as an evangelist telling people that they need to mourn their sins, telling them that they need to repent, telling them that they must obey God. You know, Ecclesiastes 12, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This Mm. is the whole duty of man. I don't fear preaching that plainly Yeah. on the street. Everything in its place. But I I also never fail to teach people that they won't be forgiven of their sins by their good works and that they shouldn't trust in their good works as their right to heaven. Obviously, this is all 
I'm just just thinking especially about sanctification and uh, and doing good works, and you're calling that a requirement. Um, and I know that's like there's been a contra- controversy with like um, John Piper talking about like final justification and uh, and all these things, but the scriptures clearly say that um, if you don't obey God, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You you will not be in heaven without uh, obe- obeying Him. And that's right. And you can, you know, in reality, we what that means is if the Holy Spirit indwells you and you have been made a new creature, you will live a different way. And uh, so it's almost like the requirement is also the gift itself of of being changed. And again, that goes back to the idea of fruit coming out of a tree. It's naturally going to be there, but there's a sense in which the scriptures say you have to produce the fruit, even though God's the one producing the fruit. Yes, but God is producing it as to its power, but not as to the doing of it. You know, we're not puppets. Sure. We we work by his power. In him we live and move and have our being, even in natural things, how much more so in supernatural and spiritual things. But there still are good works. Mm-hmm. We're the actors. And thus it's right that the Bible constantly calls us to them and speaks to us as as agents and warns us. I mean, I don't know without this full biblical understanding how you could understand Psalms like Psalm 15 or Mm -hmm. Psalm 24, both of which ask very plainly, who's going to go to heaven and say, only the holy. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Yeah. You know, I've heard a lot of people try to preach that kind of thing in a way that that just undermines what it's actually saying. Sure. And what these doctrines really expose is a lot of of what is called Christ-centered preaching is actually just lying to people. And it's storing up wrath for them. Can you break that down? What What do you mean by that? A lot of people will speak of being Christ-centered and they'll avoid the plain implication of something like Psalm 15 and saying that this is just about Christ and it's not about the believer. Um, But I actually think that's a violation of the third commandment and it's a very harmful because it's actually not giving scriptural warnings and wholesome doctrine that could save sinner souls. There are countless people who call in the name of Christ to profess the Lord Jesus who are not going to go to heaven because they refuse to serve him. And Christ says that. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. Many are called, Christ says, but few are chosen. And for us not to preach that is actually a sort of spiritual malpractice. It sins against those who need to hear these doctrines. It shuts them up so that they won't actually go to heaven. And for people then to call that Christ-centered preaching, I think is a very grave thing. That's that's fantastic. Let's let's take a break. We'll take some voicemails and see if we can answer some of their questions. Uh, We'll be right back with Michael Spangler. Rogers 
Hey, what's up, folks? It's your boy, Dwayne. This is The Bar Podcast, a podcast that's interview style. We interview well-known preachers, seminary professors, ministry leaders, app developers, artists, and even local pastors. Tune in every Tuesday to your favorite podcast, The Bar Podcast. You will find a new episode and a new guest. Go to thebarpodcast.com or any of your favorite podcast catchers. Peace. Welcome back to Gospel Riot. I'm here with Michael Spangler. We're going to listen to some voicemails. Hey, Les, this is Bob from Florida. My question would be, uh, is our faith considered work as uh, like it is considered in First and Second Thessalonians? That's my buddy Bobby. He lives right down the street. He, uh, he often comes to my door and delivers me wonderful gifts of uh, beers that he's tried. <laughs> he's a good, <laughs> good friend. Um, so his question is, is faith considered a work? And he says specifically as it's considered in First and Second Thessalonians. Yes, I'm not familiar what passage he's speaking of, but it is a work. I, I think of First John three, uh, verse twenty-two. Excuse me, uh, verse twenty-three, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of this of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another, as he gave us commandment. It's right that God commands us to faith. In terms of the moral law, there's a general faith required of all men there to believe in God. But in terms of the gospel, there's a specific command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's right. The Bible speaks of them as commandments. What it doesn't say is that it is faith as obedience to the command of God that justifies. I think it's very important. Huh. And it's right even to say that faith itself, in that sense, does not save, in the sense of the right of salvation. Our faith is not a purchase. It's not like we have that, that all the works we could do will not earn our justification, but there is one work called faith which will earn our justification, or that God will receive in exchange for a work, like a little low-grade work that God just kind of winks at how small it is. It's not at all the gospel. Mm -hmm. Faith is obedience to God, but it's not as obedience that it saves. It's as it receives and rests on Jesus Christ alone. So it's, it's the instrument by which we are obtaining, we're, we're uh, uh, I, I love that, that uh, phrase, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, right? So it's, right. it's this, it's the the way in which we are clinging to that to that cross, and it's the work of Christ that saves us, and we receive the benefits of that by placing our faith in what Christ has done. Is that is that a good way to say it? Yes, that's right. And the assumption here is we're speaking in the realm of justification about the right of salvation. Hmm. Um, the Bible has other language when it speaks of our good works. It says in Revelation that their good works follow them into heaven. And it's not that they pave the way there, of course, but they are, in that sense, the way we will walk on to heaven. Um, there's no merit involved there. There's no right earned in that walking. But, but yes, faith may be called a work, but it is not as a work that it justifies. That it justifies. So what about in sanctification? Would you say there's a proper place for saying 
uh, growing in your faith uh, as as a work, as an obedience to God. Yes, yes, and I think that is the root of our sanctification in the good works we do. Mm-hmm. And Christ said, "Abide in me," John fifteen, and ye shall bear much fruit. That's the only way. Faith is the source, or it's the instrument through which we receive the power to do good works. And so, yes, to grow in good works, you must grow in faith. There's no disconnect. In that sense, we're sanctified by faith as well. So I, I want to go back just to uh, what what you, we were talking about before the break. Um, you were saying that uh, even though the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers our obedience it is still our obedience he doesn't he doesn't do it for us um is it is it at all more complicated than that uh in in my estimation i i understand like i agree uh, obviously so for example when we're when we're justified uh we're we're first regenerated we're first uh brought to spiritual life and then we respond to the gospel call with faith uh, and that is something we do. So it is our faith, but that faith is called a gift from God. Not yes, that, not right. not that God believes through us or or you know believes for us, but right. it's a gift. And then it's we exercise the thing that has been given to us, and it's even that is done. Um, I, I don't know if you say irres- yeah. irresistibly. And then in Philippians two, uh, yes. twelve through thirteen. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, even your own salvation, own it. Uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the, the human responsibility. But the way he phrases uh, how that works in verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the will and the doing is is still attributed back to to God. So I'm doing what God is uh, is empowering me to do in my will and in my actual action. So, like, so I, I get not not losing the balance of saying no. You actually have to be the one doing it. But isn't it also right to say, with, without becoming a puppet, that God is working in you, and these things are, in a sense, the works of the Spirit. Yes, yes, and I think the distinction is, and it's well honored in theology, is the distinction between the the power and the the one doing the work. The power is entirely God's. By nature, we have no power. We're dead in sins and trespasses. And I think the passage you chose, Philippians two, is is exactly the one that I was going to choose. I think it puts it very clearly that He works in us. To will and to do. Mm-hmm. We actually do the good works that he's given us beforehand that we might walk in them, as it says elsewhere. So I think I think it's good. The reason it's important to insist that Christians do the good works they do, it's not just that God does them, is because there is a lot of antinomian talk that says something like, well, Christ did all the good works. I don't have to do any myself. Sure. And, th- and then even in the actual 
outworking of obedience, a lot of people will say something like let go and let God, where you kind right. of like just fall into the arms of the spirit and let him move your arms and legs to do the good things, which people right. just, I'm sure but God's that, work is, is deeper and more powerful than that. He, he renews our wills so that we actually desire yeah. to, and choose to do the work. It's really awesome in God's power. Um, he, we're not puppets and this is a character of, of Calvinism, but true Calvinism has never denied this fact that, that it's God's work. Yes. To give us the power to do it. And he's ordained it all. He's prepared the good works for us to walk in them, but we're actually the ones that walk in them. And we have an active role, so active that Paul can say in Romans eight thirteen, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, you all through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Hmm. I like you, you mentioned, uh, you, I mean, just bringing up the word Calvinism uh, reminds me of something that has has really stuck out to me lately, uh, talking about assurance and, and um, uh, perseverance, even um, a verse that I'm, everybody's very familiar with, but it, I don't know, it's just, just kind of taken on a new character in my mind recently. Second uh, Peter 1.10, uh, he says, Therefore, brothers, be sh- be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Uh, so make your calling and election sure. And then right prior to that, like this is like the, the summary of this list of all the things that, that Christians should be adding to their, their lifestyle, um, growing in grace and growing in obedience and love, brotherly love and all these things. And then he says, through these things, make your calling and your election sure, which is interesting because election is, a, a, it's a secret reality. It's not really something we can put our hands on. Um, right. But in order to make sure that you are elect, essentially, you are being called to go through this list of o- o- obeying God and growing in obedience to God. And that's how you make sure that you're elect uh, in, right. in Peter's theology, which I, I just find very interesting because... Yeah, to follow up on James, it's like saying, you show me your election. Yes. And I'll show you my election by the fruits of it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's because, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they first hear about Calvinism, uh, there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction of like, well, how can I know if I'm elect? And uh, there's almost a really bad Calvinistic answer that says, well, you can't. Or, you know, you'll you'll know if, you know, whatever. But, um, and I, I think that's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have of what perseverance means. It's almost like uh, you have you have no say in whether or not you're elect. And if you are, God will cause you to persevere till the end uh, or, you know, preserve you. But perseverance it's specifically not the word preservation. It's the word perseverance, which is the responsibility on you to persevere, to keep running, to keep pressing on. Um, so those who persevere are the ones who were, who were called and you're making your calling and election sure by persevering. Yes. And doing it with the confidence that he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion. Hmm in the day of Christ. It's ah. not 
as if I need to fear that in constant me, because I have a heart that's so wicked and unstable, that I'm going to cause my salvation to be ruined. I mean, there is a proper comfort to be taken from the doctrine of election, but it is not without a careful self-examination to see whether we have the real substance of salvation. If you haven't done the, the work the Bible requires to examine your own heart and to test by the sense of your own faith and by its fruits that you indeed have a saving union with Christ, then for you to take comfort from the doctrine of election is actually a sin against your soul mm. because you're comforting yourself, it seems, on the path to hell. Wow. So it's, very, it's very important that we not be deceived in this matter. I mean, it's so important. And as an evangelist, I would rather some, to leave someone uncomfortable and unsure, but seeking because of that to make his calling an election sure, than for someone to have a surety that's false. Because it's much, much better to limp into heaven than to go happily leaping into hell. Wow. Fantastic. What a way to end it. That was great, man. Um, well, Michael Spangler, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything you got going on that you'd like to let people know about? I would just ask prayer for the daily preaching of the gospel here in the Philadelphia area. Pray that the Lord will use it to bring sinners to the Lord Jesus and give him glory. He's worthy of it. Mm. And where can people check out this, uh, your Van Maastricht work? Um, on Reformation Heritage Books, the first two volumes are available so you can go to their website Michael Spangler thanks for being here man thank you Les it was a pleasure and guys thank you for listening we'll see you next time